all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is the program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have, and we're going to do our best to answer those questions today. If we're not able to answer, believe it or not, sometimes we are stumped. Uh, We can definitely point you in the right direction of that. Don't and sometimes that's just a, a matter of not having all the information that I need. Um, you know, dermatology is probably a good example of that. A little hard to practice dermatology uh, or to at least give advice in a direction on dermatologic problems over the radio. But uh, we would love for you to call in, even if you do have a rash that you haven't quite figured out. Or it might be a um, new medication that you're using that may be causing some side effects or just general health questions all together. A little bit colder air. We'll talk a little bit about that and how how to protect yourself as this cold uh, cold wave from the Arctic comes down, particularly in a state like Mississippi that is not quite used to this colder weather. Certainly if you're in North Dakota or upper Wisconsin or somewhere like that, you probably are, you know, you would laugh at uh, these temperatures and maybe be outside. Uh, but certainly we have some uh, differences down here in the south that uh, put us a little bit at risk for those. Got a couple of callers already on the line. We're going to go to David in Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, thank you for taking my call. This is an area that may be out of your expertise, but i like to know uh, something about chronic wasting the disease that they found in the local deer herds in Tennessee and Mississippi. I'd like to know where it came from, what kind of precautions you can take, how does it spread. Is it kids and the mad cow disease that they had a real bad problem in Europe years ago? And uh, if could it may be like they worry about bird flu, they've had to destroy all kinds of uh, chickens because they found bird flu in it. Could this chronic wasting disease in deer jump and maybe get in our, you know, kettle uh, protein, you know, food stock. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit outside what, and I do know some things about it, and I might can answer some of those questions. So, chronic wasting disease is a disease that affects deer and other ungulates, um, and uh, and uh, I may not be saying that correctly. Again, I don't, I'm not a veterinarian, uh, but. It does affect a lot of deer and uh, other animals in the deer family. As far as we know, this hasn't really jumped ship into livestock or anything that would eat outside of deer. 
in those areas. And, you know, the uh, State uh, Wildlife uh, Federation and others are tracking a lot of these cases where they do find these deer. What we know is, is it, it really it's, it's a common uh, occurrence that you see with the spread of any disease um, is that this affects deer that are coming to one particular place. So the methods of feeding them, if they're all coming to one feeder that you're attracting deer to hunt uh, on a food plot, that's more of a chance that they're going to, you know, instead of just foraging and spread out, um, there's less of a chance of that spreading. So anywhere where you have a congregation of animals, same thing you mentioned with bird flu, with a lot of the commercial um, enterprises with either chickens or other um, other birds. Turkeys is another one that bird flu, particularly this year, is pretty bad. So they've had to destroy a lot of those animals. Um, mad cow disease. Uh, so it's a little bit similar, but a different agent that causes that. And uh, it can. There have been a couple of different uh uh, you know, co-infections in people who ate that, particularly if you eat any part of the nervous system in in big quantities. So that would be the brains. Not a big fan of eating any brain of any animal, but some people do. Um, but uh, there is a, a condition in humans called Crooksfeld Jakob disease, and that's caused by an organism called a prion. A prion is not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It's a protein. And it can cause sort of a similar chronic wasting in humans. It tends to be uh, directly transmitted from uh, direct contact with brain tissue in an, a human that's been uh, infected with that. So as you can imagine, not too many people would get this. There are certain cultures around the world that practice cannibalism, either of people who had died or people that they would you know, overthrow in, in battles or war. And it's been uh, documented in those type of situations. But also there's a group actually of doctors that are at a little bit higher risk of this, and that's pathologists, just because they, in the autopsy process, they're exposed to this. So um, not really something that the general population should be concerned about, but um, you know, that the containment of that and trying to do things where you don't spread it is probably the biggest thing. Certainly I would, if you, killed a deer or you found a deer that that you think might have that if you're a deer hunter you should know about those those signs and symptoms and uh and uh and not uh, consume those products uh dr jimmy i wanted to jump in here and tell david that i think this is a topic that we discussed on creature comforts not too long ago about uh, deer uh and so if you were to go to creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org you can find the episode that we talked about deer recently, and it might have some more information about the chronic wasting disease. Excellent. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, David. Let's go to Mikey from Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, good morning. Thank you, as usual. You know, like for the, the wonderful information you dispense to all of us and share with all of us. Absolutely. Um, I'm putting my glasses on, okay? Because <laughs> I was writing, forgive me, but I was writing a note. <laughs> That's okay. We don't want you to call in blind. (laughs) Well, not totally blind, but okay, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm working on it. That's why I'm calling in. All right. Um, uh, uh, First of all, vaccines, vaccinations. Um, All right. I've had a double, and then I've had uh, the the double boosters. You're talking about vaccines for for, um, COVID? 19, and then, you know, it's like, and recently got the Omicron. Yeah, Omicron, yeah. 
Omicron. Okay, thank you. That's yeah, like the Greek, right. like the Greek letter. Yeah. Already. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, and, and also flu. And I've spaced the last two reasons to elaborate to go into right here. But, sure. Um, uh, just got the last of the uh, um, the o- Omicron. Thank you. And um, and the flu two weeks apart uh, due to my particular situation. Pneumonia once in a lifetime. Am I understanding that that's correct? So the pneumonia one is one that can change from, you know, depending upon the vaccines and what strains we're seeing of the bacteria that causes pneumonia. So if you've been getting a pneumonia vaccine for the last even 10 years, you'll know that it's changed a good bit. It used to be, you know, for certain individuals, a PCV-13 was what they needed, followed by a PCV-25. Now we're, we have a PCV-20, which is much better. So it's really just a targeted response to what's out there in the different strains of it. So if you're over the age of 65 and you haven't been vaccinated for you know the pneumonia vaccine, you need to get the PCV-20. And the best way to, to, you know, if you don't know those numbers, that's okay. Call your physician or wherever you got your vaccine. If you get it at a pharmacy, that's fine, too. Call them. They'll know, and they'll know sort of what's out there. But once you get that, you're right. That's it. You don't need another one. Uh, You certainly don't need it year to year. It can be confusing. A lot of my patients come in and say, hey, I'm ready for my pneumonia vaccine. Don't I get that every year? No, that's flu uh, so, and the reason we give flu every year is most people I think know this is it's designed according to what those strains of flu are in other parts of the world. So it's gotten pretty good with the prediction. You can have some years that it's not quite on target, but this year it seems to be pretty, pretty targeted for what the, the strain of flu is. Okay. Another to ask about, uh, cause I just, re- I, I just uh, figured it out. It, I, I had Rosa, but it's Risa. The new, particularly infectious with children, as I understand it, babies. Oh, RSV, RSV. Yeah, there's not really RSV, there's yeah. there's not really a vaccine for that. Um, it is something that is in the general population, and um, adults most of the time don't have a hard time, even older adults with that. They'll get sort of cold-like symptoms. It's the younger infants and children that can get that, and they'll, they'll present with wheezing just because their airways are smaller and a little bit more floppy, um, and that's, that's the main way that they, they can be affected. Not every child will have to be hospitalized for that or have severe complications. However, you know, kids who are younger and who are uh, who have already have lung problems like asthma or things like that, they tend to do a little bit worse with it. It's supportive therapy. There are some medications that we give that can help the wheezing, um, but really, you sort of have to wait it out. And the the tough thing about RSV is that it it you can get better and then you can sort of relapse with it. But again, adults, runny nose, cough, those are the main things with that. But um, unfortunately, not an, a vaccine for that. Would love to have that because right now we're getting inundated with a lot of kids with RSV. But great. Well, qu- Mardi Gras coming up. That's right. And we're going <laughs> to spread uh, Mardi Gras uh, and uh, holiday uh, service. Can I ask? Can I ask one more sure. most important question? Sure. Uh, this is a tip, actually, that um, after the 1st of January, which is uh, not that far away, um, I've found out recently, and I don't even remember where, that you can get, that if you're on Medicare, 
folks who need things like the shingles vaccine, which is most incredibly important, you know, I mean, yeah. who wants yeah. that, um, uh, will be on Medicare at no charge after into January. So I'm holding off on that. Am I correct or not? Um. Yeah, so... It depends on your age, and if you're on Medicare, they will go ahead and and cover that. So um, I haven't had any of my patients. Now, I know we had a call not too long ago about this issue, and the easiest way to do that is to call your pharmacy and say, hey, this is my name, the one you would normally go to, or your physician's office, and they can check on that. But the pharmacists know how to do this quicker. We actually are blessed to have a pharmacist in our office but they're the ones who usually check on this to see if it's available for your insurance plan. And just about every, because of the way that vaccine is given and the way that they bill for it, anybody with Medicare should should uh, qualify for that. And that, that is one that you need. So thanks for mentioning that, too. All right. If you're not able to call, I didn't give you the email earlier, but the email that's always available for you to send your questions into us is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Tom from Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Season greetings. To you, too. Uh, thank you. Uh, my wife is in her mid-70s, and she has osteoporosis. And when she is she subject to fall, she's subject to uh, fracturing a bone. Uh, she broke two hips in 21, and she broke an arm in 22. Uh, from falls. Uh, I have an associate that uh, claims there's a supercharged vitamin in the K family called MK7 that uh, supposedly uh, his, he's taking for, he's taking it for heart murmur, but he said he gave it to his, uh, or suggested it to his sister who takes it for osteoporosis. And Supposedly, it has corrected her osteoporosis, built backbone. Are you aware of anything called MK7? Yeah, I'm. I'm vaguely aware of it, and I believe that's a combination of a couple of things. So it does have a form of vitamin K in it, but it also has a form of vitamin D in it. And vitamin K is a cofactor vitamin for a number of processes. The most important ones are in our coagulation pathway that allow us to. Uh, produce clots, like if we're cut, that those clots, you know, that they um, are uh, the initial thing that happens in that coagulation pathway to sort of plug that. Um, Vitamin D, and uh, there's different forms of that within our body, and they all have a little bit different functions in the pathway. But basically, that's a cofactor to lay down bone, to build up bone. We, We also, you know, if you think about this as building a wall, okay, as a structure, that uh, you need vitamin D is one of the components of that, just like with a wall. You know, if you're building a concrete wall, there's different things in the concrete that you need. And then you also need calcium. Uh, so calcium is a big component of that. And we get those two things in different ways. Calcium, of course, is in our diet. And our we have to have calcium for a number of other things like healthy muscle function, including our heart. The way the body regulates those levels is it draws from its source of calcium. So if we don't take in enough calcium in our diet, guess where it comes from? Our bones. So it takes it out of the bones. The bones become thinner. 
And that's where you get osteoporosis from, or osteopenia is the sort of the, the in-between level right before you get to osteoporosis. So they get thinner because your body's like, hey, I need this calcium to do these other th- processes in the body. The only place I can take it from are bones. And then as we get older, we typically we do less load-bearing exercises, and that's another way to build it up. But you got to have adequate, adequate uh, amounts of that vitamin D and calcium coming into your diet. We can make vitamin D uh, uh, if your kidneys are working good and you have enough sun exposure in your skin. You can actually make that, but it is a little bit of a hard, particularly in, in those individuals who have darker skin color. So if you're talking about African-Americans or uh, other uh, you know, people who have, who have darker skin colors, they're more at risk for it. So the vitamin D, however you get that, is important. And if... Uh, most of the time, if she's, you know, if a patient's been diagnosed with osteoporosis and they're at risk for falls or have had falls that have caused um, fractures, they'll check a vitamin D level. If that vitamin D level is adequate, then all you need to do is continue taking in adequate amounts of that vitamin D. If it's low, then they're probably going to give you a prescription dose for that. That's going to be a lot higher than what's in normal things you can get, including the MK7. Um, And uh, that's important because it takes a while to get those stores built back up, and then you can back off of it a little bit. But they're also going to suggest taking adequate amounts of calcium, and that's probably going to be about 1,800 milligrams of calcium a day, a lot of people go back and forth with the different, you know, like calcium citrate, calcium uh, in different forms. Um, but the most important thing is that you're getting enough of it. And then another thing that I think is very important that is often left out of that and um, is a is a really a prescription for load bearing exercise. So when we do things like walking or light weights or even heavier weights. They do a couple of things. They build muscle mass, which places more stress on bones, which actually the bones react to that as long as they have that substrate of building materials that are available to build those bones back up. In 70 and over, it's not too late. And what it also can do is strengthen those muscles that allow you to catch yourself when you fall or allow you to stabilize yourself. So it's incredibly important. Most Medicare plans uh, and other health insurance plans, they will pay, if, particularly if you've had a couple of falls, if she hasn't done something like physical therapy that is specific to a fall risk regimen, they can do that. Or, you know, if you have access to a gym, they can at least show you how to do that. You can get some lightweights at home. That is incredibly beneficial. But the main thing is, and this is this is a good prescription for anything like this. If you see somebody who says either on TV or a friend of yours that says, "Hey, this one product right here, it's good for everything," or it's if you take this, you won't have any more fractures, I would be very suspicious of that because usually the way the body works, it takes a number of things that you're doing uh, to help you know reverse that process there are some medications that do that they do have some side effects that not everybody can tolerate uh, or or choose to do but the the component that you need to do is have those building materials present regardless of the source of them vitamin d if it's really low 
Uh, and I actually, if you're over 40, I mean 70, excuse me, uh, or at risk for uh, fractures, I actually like to see the levels over 40. Um, a lot of people won't treat it unless it's less than 20, but I think that's probably a little bit too low. And again, you need a prescription dose for that before you can back off to things like the MK7 or any other source of it. Can I uh, ask another? Uh, you know, we, we've obviously gone to an endocrinologist uh, mm-hmm. because of uh, uh, the fractures and uh, the bone density. And uh, while he didn't, uh, apparently her vitamin D and calcium must be okay because he didn't subscribe, uh, prescribe any kind of uh, supplement for that. But he did. Uh, we did agree to get an infusion once a year that supposedly uh, builds a backbone as well. Are, do you know what's in that infusion? Uh, yes. So there are a couple of different infusion types. They, they're the plus side of that is it's only once a year and it lasts for a long time. Uh, Prolia is one. Reclast is one. There's a couple of different ones there, but. Basically, what they're doing is they're stimulating. There's two type of, of bone cells that lay down and take up bone. And we need bone sort of, it needs to, it doesn't just get laid down and stay there that, that way all of your life. Uh, one type of cell lays down new bone. And again, it's like your bricklayer. So it's going to have to have those, those building blocks to build up that bone. The other one is a type of cell that removes bone. And we need that because we remodel bone uh, frequently. Well, what these infusions do is they stimulate those cells to lay down more bone and they inhibit those cells that don't take away as much bone. Uh, very effective to stabilize against b- further bone loss. They can build back up a little bit. It's still important to have adequate levels of vitamin D and calcium in your diet. So again, the MK7 in, in this instance would be fine or another source of vitamin D um, and about 400 international units, if your vitamin D levels are okay a day, that's great. Um, and then um, the calcium, again, needs to be about 1,800 milligrams. But you can get that naturally in different sources, depending on what your diet is. But you really need to at least look at it. It's super simple to get that. So a lot of people just take Tums because that's about 200 milligrams in each Tums um, that you that you chew up and, you know, whatever your favorite flavor of Tums is. Um, but yeah, those are very effective. Not not for everybody. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and there are side effects there, but um, that is a very effective medicinal way to stimulate the body cells to lay down new bone. Yeah, I, I, I will say I do endorse uh, the uh, uh, physical uh, strengthening of the bones through uh, resistance training. Unfortunately, she breaks she breaks these bones in intermittently and uh, prohibits her from having to do yeah. being able to do that yeah. to catch twenty two. But uh, anyhow, I appreciate the, the input, Doc, and uh, uh, hope you have a great season. Thank you, Tom, and the same to you and your wife. We would love to hear from you if you have a question about your health care or the health care of someone near and dear to you. If you're not able to call, send us an email. That's remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Patty, who's been patiently waiting from Clinton. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, nice to talk to you, Dr. Jimmy. Absolutely. I have a question. Um, I have asked two different dermatologists, and nobody has given me an answer. Um, I get these little white, I don't even know, it's a waxy substance. It's, it's very white, 
and they usually pop up around my eyes, and they don't go away. It's not like, um, you know, a pimple or something, and it's not inflamed, and they won't go away unless I open the skin up and pop them out. And it's a kind of a hard, white substance. I don't know if it's genetic or if it's something with my diet or I don't know what they are or what to do about them. No one has given me any answers yet. Let me ask a couple of questions. So are they located on the more on the lower eyelid towards your nose? Actually, no. I okay. get them on the upper eyelid. I get them on the lower eyelid. I have one right now that's out towards the uh, outer corner of my right eye. And these are very small, like like head head of a pin, uh, or 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 two or three pins. But gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a couple of different things. Anytime somebody says waxy substance, there's a couple of things that that normally it could be. And the right around the eyes and the nose, there's uh, some glands that make sebum, and sometimes those can get plugged everybody has different size you know like we have we're different heights we have different sizes to a lot of our pores sometimes um and it sounds like that's probably what's going on that's these are getting plugged now i don't know for certain you know what those again dermatology is one of those things over the radio can be sort of derm- a little dangerous but you you said you've seen a couple of dermatologists that have looked at that yes i've gone to the dermatologist mostly for other reasons, and Mm -hmm. then I'll say, hey, will you look at these things? Because they're really not, it's more of a cosmetic issue to me. You know, they just don't look good. And and I've even had them up right under my eyebrow. So, I mean, they're not always, you know, right right near the opening of my eye, but but a lot of times they are. And nothing nothing along the hairline or around your ears? No. Okay. Nope. So, yeah. Some of the, what you're describing sounds more like seborrhea, um, and it can, uh, you know, usually right around the eyebrows and eyes, it can cause some problems. Uh, treatment is fairly simple with that. I'm going to say I would get a one more dermatologist separate from your dermatologist to take a look at it, because if yeah. it's seborrhea, it's pretty easy to treat, um, and you can even use some over-the-counter stuff like uh, selenium sulfide, which is in uh, Celsin Blue. Um, maybe something that you may, you may want to just use as a wash a little bit around that area. Be careful not to get in your eyes. But it uh, sometimes, if that's what it is, that's an easy fix for it. But it, it's complicated enough in what you're describing that it may need to be looked at before you do that by another dermatologist. It doesn't sound, I'm not hearing any red flags that this is anything that's dangerous, but as you said, particularly around our eyes, I mean, cosmetically, yeah. that's that's a big deal. Yeah, and and most of the time they look at it, take a quick glance and just say, oh, that's nothing. You know, and I'm like, oh, Tell I them want to know what When they is. say that, exactly, say, oh, no, 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 you have to name it. You have to tell me what that is. <laughs> yeah. At least, and I guess because I'm there paying for something else, you know, that they're just, they just kind of blow it off. Look, one of, the, one of the things that, that we as doctors do sometimes is we because we see – we're looking for the things that are more complicated, like the dermatologist is looking for basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell right. carcinoma, those kinds of things. And you're right. Sometimes we don't um, – and you may – hopefully you don't have any of that – 
But it's just as important to say, oh, this is what that is. Um, that's a hemangioma on your skin, and it's nothing to worry about. We can deal with it if you have a you know problem with it, but it may just be a capillary hemangioma. That's not what you have. But, um, you know, that's just an example. But, yeah, I'd, I'd have them either name that. I, really, I do have one of those also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I know what that got is. got a ton of those. But um, it, it's... I think it may be worthwhile just visiting one more dermatologist to, to get their opinion and focus in on that and don't say, and say the yeah, only reason I'm here that. is for these things underneath my eye or around my eyes and see if they can give you a diagnosis. All right, great. Thanks so much. All and right. what did you say you thought it was? It, was, it uh, sounds a little bit like seborrhea, but again, seborrhea. without actually seeing it, uh, it's a little bit hard to tease out that. But that may be something you can throw out there and they can say, Dr. Jimmy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is what it really is. Or, yeah, yeah. Or yes or no. Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. We're going to go to, I believe, Marcy from uh, Ocean Springs. There we go. Good morning, Marcy. Yes, sir. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. I really hope you can suggest something else I can do for the discomfort I'm having because of a, a tube stent in my, uh, uh, from the kidney down to my bladder. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, stents are two, I know you know this, uh, but we're just for our audience. Tent, uh, stents are tubes that go inside a, um, a, a hollow, uh, tubule, and it can be in a number of different structures. Like we put stents in arteries sometimes in veins, but we also put stents in, uh, you know, in the esophagus. In this case, it's the tube, it's the, the ureter that goes from the kidney down to the bladder. And you can have different things that happen to that. I'm guessing this was probably something that's either you were born with or developed over time due to something like kidney stones or uh, some people have over time, they just get strictures in that for, for no apparent reason. But they can be painful. You know, kidney stones, part of the pain is when they travel, not when they form in the kidney, but when they travel down these small tubes and they're muscular tubes that sort of push things down. When they push against a hard object, there are pain receptors there. And that's why kidney stones are some of the most painful things that patients describe as far as, you know, a type of pain. Stents sometimes can do that too. And it can be incredibly hard to treat. One of the things that urologists, who are usually the people who put these in, sometimes nephrologists, but mainly mainly urologists, that, um, you know, they can be uh, to the point where they may need to take those out and see what, you know, if if the, they, that kidney can function that way uh, with urine output through the ureter. But I don't know if that if you've talked to them about it, probably yes. Um, but there's not really anything other than pain medication that you can take. There's not something that they can do locally to that. You know, some people have looked at it. The problem with if you if you start to mess around with the nerves to that ureter and cut those, number one, you can still have pain um, there, and you might interfere with the process of that of that uh, stent working effectively. Um, so I don't have a quick fix for you. I wish I could because I know that's probably really painful. <laughs> it's just tiresome. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, for the length of time. Yeah. When I found out it would be six weeks from whenever it was inserted until 
you know, I get the MAG-3 um, test so yeah. that they can understand the functioning, whether they're going to keep the kidney or take it out. And so, yeah, you know, I, ask, I ask for the analgesic that I get when I have infection. So I have those. Um, and I also wanted to know if there was anything else I could take for the pain. And then I, I learned about either Aleve or Tylenol and um, the Tylenol hurts my stomach. And I found out that Aleve would hurt my kidney or my kidneys and the Tylenol hurts my liver. And so I still had some medicine from the ER uh, that's called Tamsulosin yeah. that the doctor yeah. there gave me for the pain from the kidney stone, but the blockage was from scar tissue from an earlier procedure that I had had. Tamsulosin isn't a pain medication per se, but it does help move things along a little bit better in the, the kidney system. So it, it may improve the pain somewhat. There are a couple other medications that you can take if you're going to have that there that long or longer. Um, things like Cymbalta and Gabapentin that sometimes help with long-term pain like that, particularly if it's what, what I would call visceral pain. So it's pain that's inside in an organ rather than like uh, something that's sort of more outside musculoskeletal pain. Right. Okay, Cymbalta. And what was the second one you said? Gabapentin. Um, Neurotin is another name for that with an N and, um, Lyrica is another one. Wow. Okay. I'll request these. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Good luck to you. That, I know that's, that's a painful thing to go through. Let's go to John, I believe in Bentonia. Good morning, John. Good morning, Dr. Rick. Um, I wanted to, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, but Dr. Rick, if he's listening, oh. will love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Oh my goodness! I, We're going I, way back. <laughs> I'm 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 living in a in a in a different decade here. Uh, I'm I'm actually I I came from UAB with uh, uh, Don McLean and oh and yeah, Dr. Rick. Yeah, all those were recruited. But um, uh, you know, as previous life. But anyway, um, <laughs> I wanted to put a a big plug in for um, and I'm hoping and this is kind of a question in in inserted into the plug for for education of CDCES, um, you know, education, basically, because we need more of them. And then this is the inserted um, question. Are Is there a specialization for type 1, you know, diabetes in, in, you know, certified diabetes care and education specialists, what we used to call diabetes nurse back in the day? <laughs> yeah, there is for now. It's not specific to type one or type two, but there is a diabetic educator, um, you know, spe- a, a certificate and training that goes along with that. Usually, it is a nurse that does that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, and as far as a you know other specialty within endocrinology, there's not really one that I'm aware of, at least for type one. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, just as there are some differences between the treatment of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So, right. um, you know, a, a well-trained and experienced uh, endocrinologist should be able to do that. And you certainly, that also means that, you know, after your training, there is still a lot of training that goes on. It's just there's a lot of knowledge oh, yeah. in the field. And 
Uh, there's a lot more that we didn't know 20 years ago about type 1 and type 2 diabetes that we're, we're continuing to understand uh, as the science advances. But, yeah, an endocrinologist really at that level, they should have that experience. Some of them sort of focus on uh, either type 1 or type 2 just as some of them do focus, you know, on the on uh, hypothyroidism or, or conditions that affect the, the thyroid gland, but in their training, they should get get that training for both of those. So, sorry to interrupt, but I hope we can code down a little tangent here. I hope you have enough time to do that because um, I, I want to. I want to real you... real quick because we've got a couple of more okay. callers. We want to make sure we get to. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So so care in type one diabetes, uh, you know. Uh, is is what's critical basically and and it, and it can't be done by anyone but the patient in my opinion and and you need the right tools to be able to do it my sugar for me was that solution i got my a1c down from 6.9 this year down to 6.2 now it's back up to 6.5 because that that app on your cell phone they're firing all their certified diabetes care and education specialists and the one that I finally lucked into had uh, specialization in type one diabetes, and and now after the you know New Year's, I don't get to have her anymore. So I get to go searching for another one that isn't going to treat me like I got type two diabetes, which is what usually happens, you know, unfortunately. And and you know, type one and type two are treated differently. Correct. So anyway, right. I'm off my box. So, you know, yeah, I would I usually tell people, particularly if you have type one uh, now type two, uh, there are a lot of good internists, family medicine, you know, and so forth that do a great job. We actually have a pharmacy pharmacist in our clinic that helps out with a lot of that and does an excellent job of controlling those patients. If you have type one, most of the time I would suggest that your care be coordinated by an endocrinologist. Now, that might involve a diabetic educator, particularly early on in the diagnosis. It might involve a team of people that are being orchestrated by that uh, endocrinologist and utilizing things like continuous glucose monitoring and delivery of insulin uh, through subcutaneous methods that we have in a, a continuous modality. It might mean other medications that they're giving you to try to reduce your risk of type 1 diabetes over time. But the endocrinologist is the most important person in that. And you bring up a great point that taking uh, responsibility and ownership of that is the one of the most successful things I've seen, not just with type 1 diabetes, with any type of chronic illness. If you say, hey, I've got hypertension, I'm going to do something about it, that patient's going to be much better off in the long term and reduce their overall risk. So do appreciate you bringing that up. That's an excellent point. Man, have we had some great questions today, and we're going to go right back to them with Roger in Florence. Good morning, Roger. Well, good morning. Thank you for your your service. I'm probably calling about a scam. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've seen these advertisements before. This one says in the next 48 hours, if I sure all that. <laughs> right. This has to do with this. Oh, I'll read the top new. One dollar joint injection pill puts surgeons out of work. So there's a clue right there. <laughs> but but it, it does have a convincing story to it, and, it, and supposedly this pill contains the same sort of synovial fluid lubricant type stuff that that 
that you get when you get a, well, I don't know, a cortisone shot. The cortisone does its job, but supposedly it goes on and on about how surgeons will um, inject into painful joints. But I'm 83. I've got a, I've got painful low back. I've got two worn-out knees, my orthopedic people tell me, and I've got thumbs that hurt. And so I'm intrigued. And it says I can call toll-free, you know, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds a little bit on the scam side to me, and here's why. Um, it is um, – there are the things that you inject. They tend to be bigger molecules. They don't break down because you're putting them right in the joint space where you want them. And, you know, whether that is uh, – there's lots of different things that the orthopedic surgeons can do in their office for that. Cortisone is one. You can't get too. You can get too many of those though, and it can have systemic effects on the body. So you don't want to do that a whole lot. If you take that as a pill, guess what? It goes through your GI tract, and your GI tract, in order to absorb it, has to break it down. And once you break it down into its constituents, then they have to be small enough to be absorbed. So it's going to all your body. It's not like it's being targeted to that. So it doesn't sound like this is going to have the same effect. Now, there are things like chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine that is perfectly harmless. You can take that as a supplement, uh, chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine. Sometimes they're together in one product. And some patients have seen a decrease in their pain and an increase in their mobility with that. Some haven't, but it's maybe something to try. So that would suggest that. So thanks for uh, putting that out there. Probably a scam. I'd stick to just those two supplements. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more caller, Wilma in Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, Wilma. Good morning. I've got a new prescription that I don't understand. Sure. All, all of my blood chemistries were normal. They called with this after I'd been there. I can't pronounce it. But it's A L E N D R O N A T E sodium. Yeah, alendronate is the how you pronounce it. So, okay. alendronate is a medication that's used to uh, treat osteoporosis. Okay, and and by the way, you can have totally normal labs and still have osteoporosis. So, the bone density testing that they do or a DEXA scan. That's looking for an x-ray analysis at different points in your body, like the hip uh, and uh, other uh, long bones, to see if you have a decreased bone mass. But take, you know, other than if, you're, if your vitamin D is low uh, or if it looks like you may have an endocrine problem with your parathyroid uh, glands that help regulate calcium, if that's all normal, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have it. But alendronate, it works similarly to those two medications that we talked about earlier in the hour that is like a one-time uh, dose of those. The difference is alendronate is a pill you take, and you have to take it like at least once a week. Um, so it it's it's a little bit similar in the way that it acts. You just have to take it more often. Uh, side effect profiles are fairly the same there, but... Um, it, you, but I don't understand why I'm taking it. Probably because they, they think that you might have osteoporosis. So that's that's usually the reason for that. So you need to ask them about that. You need to call and make sure that you have that because they should have told you that before they gave you that. Well, they after my appointment, they called and said they were ordering this. Gotcha. Gotcha. No explanation as to why. Yeah, call. Okay, well, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I'd call definitely call back about that. 
Well, that's about all the time we have. Hey, have a safe holidays. And again, uh, watch out for this cold weather. It's no joke. It's going to get pretty cold for Mississippi, at least. So uh, bundle up. Make sure that you've got uh, everything, contingency plans about everything in your house and your pets, too. So don't forget about that. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced in part by, or is produced, period, by Kevin Farrell. The podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. You can tune to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.